James 4 is a rebuke. It's not a positive text. James isn't really in a chipper mood. And so I promise there's no like coded thing going on. Matt's not like asking me to aim the gun at any of you, right? Uh, James 4 is just a particularly difficult passage, not because it's complex, but because it's so clear and simple. And, and the command really cuts deep into who we are, right? Uh, but I think as we meditate on it, we'll be able to see the glories of God and what he intends for us this morning. So uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to read uh, James 4, 1 through 12, and then I'll pray, and then we'll get started. I'll be reading out of the Christian Standard Bible. I didn't have an NASB. I was like flipping my office inside out. Uh, James is really simple, so I imagine the translation is going to be very similar to yours. So James 4, verses 1 through 12. What is the source of wars and fights among you? Don't they come from your passions that wage war within you? You desire and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and wage war. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and don't receive because you ask with wrong motives. So you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? So whoever wants to be the friend of the world becomes the enemy of God. Or do you think it is without reason that the Scripture says the Spirit He made to dwell in us envies intensely, but He gives greater grace? Therefore He says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Don't criticize one another, brothers and sisters. Anyone who defames or judges a fellow believer defames and judges the law. If you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Let's pray. Lord, this passage may be easy to understand, but very difficult to obey. Even as we meditate on this text this morning, we know that if your Spirit doesn't help us, that our ears will be deaf, our hearts will be closed, we will not be receptive to your Word. We won't have the strength to obey it, to desire it, to pursue it. So we ask, Lord, this morning that your Spirit would help us. Open our eyes to see glorious things in your Word, we pray. We ask for your help.
and we trust that you'll give it. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Dr. Phil is right. Hurt people hurt people. Hurt people hurt people. It doesn't take long when you interact with other human beings to realize that turns out they're sinners. And sinners sin a lot. And I don't know if what your church experience has been like in the last couple of years, if you're older, maybe the past couple of decades. It doesn't take long before you even look at the community of Christ and you see that hurt people hurt people. Division, slander, prayer requests that you know aren't really prayer requests. And, and what James is doing in this letter is he's looking at the community of Christ and seeing that kind of division. Favoritism, where people are prioritizing status or, or, or riches over one's fellow commonality in the Holy Spirit. Seeing gossip and slander spread like fire. Seeing the whole church ablaze. Sure, a lot of us can resonate with that kind of frustration. And what James does in this passage, and, and for us this morning, is address the communal problems that we have relationally with one another by identifying the root of the problem, not with what's outside of yourself, but what's inside. That, that the hurt that we cause to people around us, the hurt that people cause you isn't just because of, of their problems or, or their lack or what they need to fix, but rather their outward actions are indicative of flaws, deficiencies, and sins that are inside. And so the main command for us this morning to heed from God's Word is, is right there in verse 7. Submit yourselves to God. Submit to God. And there's really three kind of sub-commands that he gives in light of that. Right? Uh, first, James tells us to see your evil desires. To see your evil desires. Secondly, you see a command there to submit to God. Submit to God. And lastly, in, in light of seeing your evil desires and submitting to God, he he urges us to stop slander, to stop slander. So uh, that's going to be our text this morning. Uh, I know that there's a live stream or video stuff. Um, if, if you're watching us online or, or trying to like listen to me, I'm glad that you're here. Um, trying to listen to a sermon online is trying to like cook dinner with an easy-bake oven. So uh, I'm glad that you're tuning in. I know that you probably wish to be here, and uh, I'm sure that the pastors here and the members here would love to see you. Pray that God's Word encourages you. This morning, let's, let's start with point number one. See your evil desires. See your evil desires. Let's look at verse one. What is the source of wars and fights among you? Don't they come from your passions that wage war within you? It, James is making an observation here that, that the violence that, that you see outside with divisions amongst Christians, doesn't come from, from someone else's problem or whatever is kind of ensuing or different circumstances, but rather what's inside. That the violence within is, is spilling out into people's interactions with one another. See Jesus talk about this in Matthew 15, that 
It's not what goes in your mouth that defiles you. It's not that someone else set you off or, or this circumstance just kind of increased the pressure gauge, but rather your actions are indicative of what comes out. Right? That, that what comes from within defiles us. And, and here in, in James, when he's asking kind of what's causing these wars and fights among you, he's not asking you individually. Like, what, what, why, what's bothering you so much? He's, he's speaking in the plural. He, he's looking at different churches, and he's asking, what, what's causing these fights and quarrels among y'all? And they come from your desires that battle within y'all's members? Almost as though we're all, if, you, if you're part of a church together, that, that you're a human body. And you're made up of parts. And within this part, the, these members begin to war against one another. And, and I'm sure we've all been in that type of situation where you deliberately pick the opposite corner of the room from someone else. Or you rush your way down the aisle because you don't want to make eye contact with that person. Or, or you get frustrated because that person just can't seem to, to understand this aspect of, of what they're doing and how it's really setting me off. And what James is saying is that the primary problem isn't them. The primary issue is yourself. That, that the evil that comes from within it's what's causing these kind of wars and conflicts outside. He, he elaborates in verse 2. Read with me. It says, You desire and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and, and wage war. You, you do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and don't receive because you ask with wrong motives. So you may spend it on your pleasures. James identifies our violent disobedience, our, our beef with one another, with, with our lack. That we lack what we want. And when we lack what we want, we become so dissatisfied with what we possess that, that we resort towards violent ends. I mean, have you ever seen like a child get told no by a parent? You just see them explode into this violent tantrum. James is saying, that's you. And, and satisfying these worldly desires that we have, seeking things that aren't Christ, that, that aren't God's love and what He intends for us, is like trying to drink salt water for hydration. You just drink and you drink and you only get more thirsty. That vacuum only becomes larger. See, when you desire something that isn't God, it becomes a black hole. It just sucks in every single thing that you possess. And anything that you desire, ultimately, that isn't God, won't last. You see, envy or, or jealousy or, or strife is a sign of spiritual malnutrition. It's a sign of spiritual malnutrition. It's indicative of someone that doesn't have their satisfaction in God. It's looking for fulfillment somewhere else. If you think about it, that's a completely tragic thing. See, God provides abundantly beyond anything we could possibly ask or think. Right? 
The Bible says that he knows our needs before we even ask him. And that's precisely why when, when we look towards things other than God, that there's nothing more counter to God's nature. Envy is totally opposed to everything that God has done for us. There's nothing more counter to God's nature than envy. And the irony is that God is infinitely more valuable than whatever you want. Whatever that thing is that you feel would really fulfill you, God is more valuable than that. God is more valuable than even the good things that you desire. The success of your children, your dreams for this church. God is more valuable than any good thing that you want. James also identifies that, that we don't ask God. We do that all the time, don't we? We, we stress out about what tomorrow's going to bring. We try to plan meticulously for our 9 to 5 or, or for what we're going to do after work or what we're going to do after school. And, and we meticulously plan and we worry and we freak out. We, we get overwhelmed with anxiety. And throughout the whole process, we forget to pray. James is saying that the issue with our, our desiring other things fundamentally comes down to a lack of trust. And that even when we do end up remembering that, that we should pray, maybe it's a bullet in kind of your to-do list, that when you do ask, you don't get anything. And the reason is because you ask with wrong motives. You ask with wrong motives. So, let me ask you this morning, is, is God just a means to get what you want? A means to get what you want? There was a younger guy at my church recently who was really bummed out because God had not answered his prayers for one particular sister at our church to love him back. And uh, I, I sat in a, in a house with him and just listened to him pouring out his heart, you know, just utter anguish for this 25-year-old, you know. And uh, he kept saying this sentence over and over again. He said, why can't God answer just, just one of my prayers? I'm like, wow. <laughs> just one of your prayers. And he's like, I've done everything right. He did, I did everything God wanted me to do. Why can't he answer just one? Just one of my prayers. He he poured out his heart. I tried to be a good pastor and just listen for 45 minutes as he shared his heart. And after a while, he's like, John, aren't you going to say something? I said, bro, I, I don't know, man. I'm going to give you two options. I'm happy to just sit here and be a brother and just continue listening to you. Or if you want, I can give you a difficult word. And he was like, give me the hard thing. And so I looked at him. I said, brother, I love you. Maybe one of the reasons why God isn't answering your prayer it's because your prayer stinks. Because your prayer stinks. Right? How many of us have stinky prayers? Right? Where you view God like a vending machine. You put in faith coins or obedience coins. And, and you really want God to just output the thing that you want. God, why can't you just answer this one thing? This one thing that I want. And the thing is, that thing might even be a good thing. But when it becomes an ultimate thing, 
that good thing turns into a God thing. And what James is saying here is that God loves you too much to say yes to that desire, to say yes to that thing that you're obsessing over, that you tunnel vision on. You know, part of loving someone involves saying no, right? Especially even when they really want it. If you know what's best for them. See, the motive here that James is identifying when we're looking towards our own evil desires is fundamentally selfish. And what James is saying is that the reason why you have beef with other people, the reason why you may have division in your church, the reason why you can't get along with so-and-so is fundamentally a result of your selfish framework. You just can't think right. Your values are off. And when you're obsessing over what you want and how you're going to get it, you're going to start arguing with other people. Let's look at verse 4. You adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? So whoever wants to become the friend of God or a friend of the world becomes the enemy of God. See, when we desire things that, that aren't God, the Bible calls that idolatry. The Bible calls that idolatry. That that whatever you desire right, becomes an idol for us. And, that, and those idols, those obsessions, those things that, that you stare at become evil desires within, which then leads to an inner angst because you're not getting satisfied by the thing that you want. And then it spills over into outward conflict with other people. It makes a lot of sense, right? Why, why our evil desires with him would lead to, to differences and conflict with other people. I mean, we partner all the time with people who share common values to achieve common goals. Right? When I go to work, I don't have to agree 100% with every single coworker that I have. Right? The point isn't for us to get along with literally everything. The point is that we have a common goal that we're going to work together on. My clock out at 5.30, I can keep living my life. When you think about sports, or you might have a totally different worldview from someone else, but you're still trying to get that rubber ball in that metal circle or whatever you sports people do. Right? Whether it's a hobby, work, sports, whatever those things are, you team them up in order to achieve what you guys commonly value. And what James is saying to the churches, is that when you put your idol's jersey on, when you identify yourself with your own evil desires, and you see someone else who has a different desire than you put on their jersey, you begin to look at someone else like they're not on your team anymore. Right? And then your desires begin to compete with one another, and that leads to division. That's what leads to conflict. There's a reason why the Israelites kept bickering with Moses. It wasn't just because they were uncomfortable or because their stomachs were empty or because the desert was hot. Moses kept calling them out for switching teams. Right? He goes up to the mountain, receives the Ten Commandments, and comes down, and within just a couple weeks, the Israelites are already bowed down before a golden cow. They told him to stop, and that caused division. It caused conflict. See, all throughout the Bible, you see, if, 
if you have beef with another Christian, that's probably a good sign that you're worshiping a golden cow and not the living God. And that's my pun for the morning. And when we're Christians, God views our idolatry like adultery. Like adultery. See, that word for adulterous people literally translates to adulteresses. He's calling us cheaters. See, this idea is that God is our husband, and we as a church are Christ's bride. And what we do is we commit adultery whenever we commit idolatry. We cheat on God with our own worldly desires. And that friendship with the world is hostility with God. A friendship with the world is hostility with God. Sometimes we confuse being winsome with being friends. So just to be clear, we as Christians absolutely want to be winsome. You know, some people that go out into the world and they just say the most abrasive stuff and, and people hate them and they turn around almost like it's persecution, right? Like they earned this trophy. They rejected me because of Jesus. And I just listen to them, and in my head I'm thinking, yeah, they rejected you because you're a jerk. Right? We absolutely want to be winsome. We want to have a charitable, charitable disposition towards those around us. But when we start to align ourselves with the world, we start to value what, what it values. Sure, it's... Uh, values and, and moral framework. When we use cultural engagement as a, as a cover for compromise, then we've lost sight of what really matters. We've lost sight of what really matters. James continues in verse 5. Or do you think it's without reason that the scripture says the spirit he made to dwell in us envies intensely? That word envy is the same word for, for jealousy. That, that God jealously longs for the Spirit that He has caused to dwell in us. That, that the Holy Spirit, when, when you come to Jesus and, and the Holy Spirit dwells in you, that God jealously longs for us as His children. That when He sees you going for other desires, when He sees you going for worldly things, that God gets jealous. And the idea of a jealous guy is kind of weird, right? I mean, Oprah is pretty open that the reason why she abandoned the Christian faith was sitting down at a church, probably similar to this one, and hearing a preacher say that God was a jealous God. And jealousy just seems bad. It, it, it almost sounds like it comes from a place of insecurity. Like, almost like God is pathetic enough, so petty that he's going to go after the hearts of human beings just by having the entire universe. So, so let me try to reframe jealousy for us a little bit this morning. No one is surprised if someone's upset if their spouse commits adultery, right? No one's upset by that. One can even identify a spouse's hurt as jealousy. But it makes sense, right? Because jealousy is the appropriate response to a violated covenant relationship. To a violated covenant relationship. That there's something unique about that covenant relationship that doesn't exist with other people. I'm a young man. 
I'm not married, but let's say I was. I was standing before you this morning, and my wife's sitting in the front row somewhere cheering me on. And I look at all of you, and I say, I love all women equally. She'd probably say, you better not. (laughs) Why? Because the nature of that covenant relationship is that there's something exclusive. Right? That what makes a marriage different than your relationship with any other person is that there's a covenant that you have with the other person that you don't have with other people, right? That's what makes your family your family. And that's what makes God our Father. That's what makes Christ our husband. And when we start looking to other things and starting to value them in that same level of intimacy or desire, Christ, our husband, gets jealous. He wants you. Whenever we idolize other things, we are violating that covenant relationship. And the right response to that is jealousy. Is jealousy. You can start to understand why God gets so upset. You even start to see why God doesn't just give us kind of, you know, relational uh, conflict resolution tips. Because more than just resolving your beef with someone else, God is most concerned with your heart. That the conflicts that you see on the outside are indicative of what's inside. And so, what does God do in response? Surprisingly, He doesn't just rebuke us. He actually gives us more grace. Gives us more grace. So, as the end of point one, point number two, submit yourselves to God. Submit yourselves to God. Let's look at verse 6. But he gives greater grace. Therefore he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God gives us more grace. God's jealous response to our idolatrous disobedience isn't to abandon you, but to give you more grace. To give you more grace. And then he quotes what we read earlier in Proverbs 3, that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. But gives grace to the humble. See, God opposes the proud. He opposes them. If you're proud here this morning... I have some bad news for you. God will oppose you. God will oppose you. The the reason why the Israelites were described as stiff-necked people were because uh, the idea of a stiff neck was that you basically literally couldn't bow down because you had a rod kind of sticking up through your body. And what God is saying here in this verse is that if you're stiff-necked, if you're going to try to duke it out with the king of kings, he's going to break you. He's going to absolutely demolish you, and you're going to lose. But for the humble, God will give you grace. God will give you grace. Isaiah 42.3 says that God will not break a bruised reed or put out the smoldering wick. This, this picture of two things, right? One, a, a reed that's kind of dangling by a fiber, 
like a plant that has stem kind of broken, but it's still attached. That, that Christ is so gentle with you in his hands that it'll never break. Or a candle that's on its last kind of flickers of coal. That God would so tenderly care for that weak flame that it'll never get put out. God is a compassionate God. And he cares for you. Do you understand what he's saying here? This idea of receiving grace for the humble? I mean, so many of us get caught up in this kind of spiritual inferiority complex, right? I mean, can God really love me? I don't even know how I made it inside this room today. And what God is saying is that if you feel low, if you feel broken, if, if, if you feel destitute, that that's exactly where God wants you. And God wants to give you more grace. Which means, if you think about it, God opposing the proud, even that action is an act of God's grace. That, that God opposing you, if you're proud, is an act of his kindness. Richard Sibbs wrote this book several centuries ago called The Bruce Reed. If you haven't read it, read it. I mean, it is like getting hugged by 10,000 clouds simultaneously. It's just, is one of the most comforting things ever written. And one of the things that Richard Sibbs does is he takes this verse in Isaiah and Matthew that Jesus quotes about the bruised reed and smoldering wick, and he just meditates on it. Just keeps going deeper and deeper and deeper into it. And one of the things that Sibbs knows, in light of God's sovereign kind of control and care over our lives, that God not only won't let the bruised reed break, but he's actually the one that bruises the reed. That's the idea that you see here in James 4, that God opposes the proud. That if you feel bruised, that that was actually God's doing. That God actually bruises the reed. And he asks the question, why? Right? Why would God allow these things to happen to us and break us and make us weak? And his answer is that he bruises the reed so that the reed knows that it's a reed and not an oak. Not an oak. See, if you fall into the self-delusion of self-sufficiency, God loves you too much not to bruise you, to remind you of your fragility. Not so that you become discouraged or, or so weak that you feel like you're going to fall apart, but so that that weakness would press you back into the loving arms of the Father. Right? If you feel like God's been bruising you, if you plotted your way into your seat this morning, you're exactly where God wants you. He wants to give you more grace. And he's going to do that through bruising. But it's an act of God's kindness. Verse 7. Therefore, he concludes in light of verse 6, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, sinners, and, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. 
see a bunch of different commands rattle off in succession here in verses 7 through 9. You can sum it all up in that verse command to submit yourself to God. James is saying that some of you this morning need to repent to choose a different allegiance. To turn back to God. To submit yourself to God. And that idea of submission means that you actually have to submit. Submission means that you're not always going to agree, right? Because if you always had to agree, if you always agreed, you would never have to submit. You would just agree and move along in harmony. James is saying you need to give up some stuff. You need to submit yourself to God. That kind of submission is not easy. But it's important. He then says to resist the devil and he will flee from you. He will flee from you. James is pointing out a real spiritual reality. That if you have conflict with another brother or sister in Christ, if you have evil desires that are festering up in your heart, Satan loves it. He couldn't be more delighted in that idea. And he's going to do everything that he can in his power to foster that, to encourage that, and tear Del Rey apart. And what James is saying is notice that, identify that, be sober-minded towards it, and resist the devil. Resist him. To recognize that there's a spiritual reality in which Satan would love to see this church fall apart and is telling you to resist. And the promise is that when we resist the devil, he will run. He will run. You see, what, what Satan's going to do is he's going to try to convince you to resist another brother or sister in Christ. And what James is telling you to do is recognize that they're on the same team and that there's actually a different enemy. And when you resist him, he will flee from you. He will flee from you. You see a third command there, to draw near to God. Draw near to God. It says that He will draw near to you. Spurgeon notes two things about this command. Number one, it's a command, not a request. God's not saying, please, can you just like come to me? I'd love to see you. No, He's commanding you, draw near to me. Something He wants you to do. The second thing that He notes is that the command implies that you can. You can draw near to God. Sometimes we view our drawing near to God almost like us bothering Him. Like our dad, like working in the shop somewhere, we're interrupting whatever he's doing. God's not like that. He delights in you. He wants you to draw near to Him. He wants to save you. He wants to cleanse you. That's part of God's desire. He's not a reluctant Savior. He wants you to come to Him. And then James says to wash your hands and purify your hearts what you do and what you believe and to grieve, mourn, and wail. James is basically saying you have to address the problem. That 
better than just kind of moving on kind of without words and just kind of assuming that you're on the same page and just kind of asking them how their week is doing and slowly thawing the ice without ever talking about it. James is telling you that you actually need to address things. That you need to look at your sin in the face and actually repent. To take the time to mourn and to wail. Right? Don't take your beef and then just bury it under the rug. Address it. You know why? Because if you bury it under the rug and you beef with that person again, what happens to that thing? It comes right back. Right? Some of you have laundry lists of beef that you have with your spouse. You need to address it. You need to address it. Real forgiveness. Repentance is not just resolving to do better next time but acknowledging the wrong that was done and acting to make that thing right. Acting to make that thing right. See, Paul rebuked the church over this in 1 Corinthians 5. You have a situation where the dude's sleeping with his dad's wife, and they're just not doing anything about it. They're trying to bury it under the rug. And what Paul tells them is that you are arrogant, Right? That, that not addressing genuine conflict or genuine issues is actually a sign of unhealth. So, so here's what Delray should not be. It should not have a visible unity that then falls apart like a house of cards the moment that the winds of conflict kind of blow through the doors. Right? What you want is to address conflict. A church that doesn't have conflict is a church that's empty. Right? You're going to sin against each other. So what you need to do is address things. Apply grace to them. You see that in verse 10. He reiterates the command again. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. Humble yourselves before the Lord. Part of the reason why James talks so much about the heart here while addressing relational conflict is because repentance uh, is really key when you think about fixing and repairing relationships. Repentance involves you giving up your ability to control the situation. Your ability to control the situation requires you to open your hands and be vulnerable. And that's hard to do. But the beauty of Christianity is that when we do that before God, when we open ourselves up, when we let go of our obsession with control or achieving our own desires, that the Lord lifts us up. If you feel inadequate or, or meek, God will lift you up. If you feel strengthened and encouraged in the Lord this morning, you can't take credit because the Lord lifted you up. See, humility is like roots. The deeper that they go, the higher you can grow. And what James is asking us to do and and commanding us to do from the Lord is to humble ourselves because that's the disposition that you need to have in order to love a fellow brother or sister in Christ. But let's conclude with the third point here, to stop slander. Stop slander. Verse 11. Don't criticize one another, brothers and sisters. Anyone who defames or judges a fellow believer defames and judges the law. If you judge the law, 
You are not a doer of the law, but a judge. See, if you're humble, if you go through all of that, God exposing your sin, right, putting yourself in your place, bruising you, and then applying grace to you, and then you see the beauty of humbling yourself, how could you possibly slander a brother or sister in that kind of disposition? How could you do that? See, this is not talking about confronting another person about their sin, right, or or addressing someone else's issue. There's absolutely a time and place for that. This passage is talking about slander. And I would define slander as speech, or talking to another person about someone else in a way that is not helpful, not necessary, and not edifying. Notice I didn't say false. You can say true stuff. But if it's not helpful, if it's not necessary, or if it's not edifying, then it's slander. It's slander. And we love to spill the tea, don't we? We love gossip. We love slander. And part of the reason why I think that we love slander so much is because it elevates ourselves over other people. I mean, ever wonder why like, people watch Jersey Shore? or keeping up with the Kardashians, or, or all sorts of other trashy reality TV. For me, it's Big Brother. Right? It's not because we look at them like role models, like we aspire to be like, I don't know, Snooki, right? The reason why we love those shows or, or watch them isn't because we aspire to be like that, but because we delight in judging them. Right? They're terrible people. And you look at them do ridiculous things, and as you feel moral superiority over them, you feel a little better about yourself. See, it's easy to look at people so unabashedly lavish and self-centered and, and try to laugh at them. And the irony about slandering other brothers and sisters in Christ is that in your attempts to feel better about yourself or to address your own desires and feel, fulfill those things, as you attempt to elevate yourself over another brother or sister, as you slander them, that's precisely the thing that makes you lower than them, that makes you worse than them. What James is saying here is that when you judge other people using the law, when you use the law like a hammer to beat down over people's heads, that you're actually wor more worthy of criticism than they are. You're actually more worthy of criticism than they are. If you're not a Christian here this morning, I'm glad that you're here. You might be listening to me and you're like, yes, 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 yes. John, that's exactly why I'm not a Christian. Because all of you are hypocrites. And I just can't over, get over the fact of any group that would have the audacity to say that they have some moral superiority over another group when you see all the issues in the church, all the hypocrisy. I mean, I'm a Southern Baptist. There's sexual abuse everywhere. We're on fire right now. I think that's a legit objection to Christianity. So I want to take some time to address that. Number one, I want to say that if, if you hate the hypocrisy that you see amongst Christians, I think that's actually good. I think it's right to do that. And I want to affirm that by saying that God hates hypocrisy too. In fact, he hates it more than you. There's a reason why James 4 exists in the Bible. It's because there's a mess amongst Christians, and God is saying, stop! 
Second, Christians aren't Christians because we're perfect, or because we're claiming ourselves to be more capable of good moral action, or that we aspire towards a better life by what we do. Christians are not trying to be perfectly consistent in everything that we do. We're all hypocrites. But Christians are repentant hypocrites. Repentant hypocrites. The reason why I'm a Christian isn't because I think that I'm sinless, but because I need an address or an answer for my sin. Right? And that's the good news of the gospel, right? That God is a good, holy God. He sees all of our sin rightly. There's a part of us that really loves that. Whenever we get wronged, we love to see justice get applied. But the bad news for you and I are that we're the bad people. We're sinners. We have rebelled against a good, holy God. And God would be perfectly just and right to punish us in hell forever for rebelling against Him. But God, in His kindness, didn't put us down, but humbled Himself by taking on flesh, by becoming a man. Jesus lived the perfect life that you and I could never live. And He died on a cross, bearing the punishment that you and I deserve for our sins. And three days later, He rose from the dead, victorious over sin and death. So good news for you and I, if you're not a Christian here this morning, is that if you turn from your sin and you trust in this God, you can find genuine forgiveness. Not where you have to deny your wrongdoing or pretend to live a perfect, good life, but have a genuine, true grace that covers your sin and that empowers you towards righteousness. That's the good news of the gospel. If you have any more questions about the faith, ask the friend who brought you. Or talk to any of the people here. I mean, I'm, you people love the gospel. I'm sure that there's no other conversation that, that the members of Delray would rather have than to talk about Jesus Christ. Let me close by reading verse 12 here. There's one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Who are you to judge your neighbor? The point of chapter 4, verse 12, is that when you identify with your evil desires and you feel an angst that those things aren't being met, what happens is you start to look at other people like they're the opposition. Right? And when you see other people in light of the opposition, what you do is you put them on trial. And you're the judge with your own moral framework, and you bang your gavel, and you call them guilty, and you kick them out. Right? Or you beef with them. Or you try to make their lives miserable. Whatever it takes to accomplish your goal. What James is trying to do is trying to bring you down a peg. He's asking, who are you to judge your neighbor? So does this mean that we never judge? That Christians should just kind of put their judging hat off and just ignore other people. I have enough problems of my own. If someone's messed up, I should just put up with it. I don't think so. So I'm going to try in like five minutes to do a mini sermonette on good conflict resolution for Christians. Okay? I'm going to try my best. Firstly, I'm going to say that the Bible clearly teaches that we actually need to address conflict, particularly to address sin. 
1 Corinthians 5, the example of the dude sleeping with his dad's wife. And Paul makes the observation at the end of chapter 5, right? He says, who am I to judge outsiders? Right? He's saying that when you look out into the world and you see non-Christians behaving like not Christians, that should not shock you, right? It's actually not your job. God judges those that are outside, but remove the evil person from among you. That's a command that you see in 1 Corinthians 5, that, that when you see evil within your own church doors, when you see unrepentant sin that's running rampant in your church, you have a responsibility to address it. I mean, there's so many issues with the church today that could be fixed if, if churches just cared more about the sin within their own walls than the sin outside. And we tend to be arrogant, slanderous, conflict avoid it. And what God wants us to be is to be humble, to be gracious, and to be direct. Okay, so, so let me go to Matthew chapter 5 really quick. So if you go to Matthew 5, I think, or Matthew 7, sorry, I think you can see the key to good conflict resolution in light of James 4. I think what Jesus says here in Matthew 7 and James 4 go hand in hand. Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. Do not judge so that you will not be judged. For you will be judged by the same standard with which you judge others, and you will be measured by the same measure that you use. That's the same thing that you see in James 4. The exact same idea. Don't judge someone else because you're going to be judged. And then verse 3. Why do you look at the splinter in your brother's eye, but don't notice the beam of wood in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the splinter out of your eye and look. There's a beam of wood in your own eye. Hypocrite. First, take the beam of wood out of your eye, and then you will see clearly to take the splinter out of your brother's eye. Okay, so quick question here. We hear this verse all the time. Judge not lest you be judged. Right? Don't take out the speck in your brother's eye when there's a log in your own eye. Right? And that image is really vivid, right? You, ha- you see some sawdust in your neighbor, and there's a huge honking plank of wood right, that's coming out of your right eye that's just kind of stuck there. Does Jesus say that we should never take the speck out of our brother's eye? Is that what he's saying? Is he saying, judge not, so just never take the speck out of your brother's eye? No, what is he saying? He's saying, first, take out the, the beam of wood in your own eye, and then take the speck of your brother's eye. In other words, the issue is an issue of process. That you as a Christian need to view your own sin as the most serious thing. You need to view your own sin as the most serious thing. Right? That's, that's the whole point of James 4 is to humble yourselves before the Lord. Right? Take the beam out of your own eye. And then what happens is, when you hate your own sin, when you repent, when you humble yourself before the Lord, then you're able to see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Right? In other words, the best way to address conflict in your church is to start with yourself. Right? To address your own sin. And then you go to take out your brother's Right? So, or not take out your brother's eye. Take out the speck in your brother's eye. You need them to see. Right? 
And that's the disposition that God wants us to have. Right? And it makes sense. Because when you have a God as gracious, as caring for weak Christians like us, why would we not want to do that? Every time that we take a log out of our eye, every time that we humble ourselves before the Lord, God gives us more grace. The reason why James wants us to address conflict with one another and to address our own evil desires is because God wants to give you himself. He wants Del Rey to be a glorious, united church. I mean, imagine what it looks like to be part of a family where people care more about their own wrongdoings than yours. Where people are quick to, and eager to see the sin in their own lives and repent and turn to Christ. That is a true faith in the gospel. right? A true love for one another. And when you do that, you exemplify a community that the world can't understand. That they would see as truly compelling truly glorious. And that's what God wants you to be. That's what God wants you to continue to be with his help. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your grace. We thank you, Lord, that you do provide grace for us. We, we ask God that you would help us to submit ourselves before you, to humble ourselves, and that you would give us the strength and grace to be able to obey you, to follow you, to trust you in all that we do. We pray this in Jesus' name.